the, the replacement theology issue has been a poison which has caused us to ignore the meaning of Scripture. Hey everybody, this is Ken Fish. Welcome to God is Not a Theory. Grant Pemberton's not with us today. It's Christmas time and uh, he is not available because of family commitments. And so uh, I have on the show with me today, my good friend Avner Bosky. He's been with us in the past on more than one occasion, including recently, just a, a couple of weeks ago, we had him on. And uh, Avner publishes a lot of, uh, I don't know what to call them, they're newsletters that come from him and his wife, but they're actually small scholarly articles on things in the Middle East. And uh, most people are very, very uninformed about the history, the politics, the religion of uh, the entire Middle Eastern con uh, landscape. And so uh, he, he put out one, I think it was about two weeks ago, addressing um, some of the origins of Islam and the origins of Hamas. And because of the ongoing conflict in the Middle East uh, between Israel and Hamas, and the possibility of a wider conflict involving Hezbollah. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say possibility because Hezbollah is already firing missiles and rockets into Israel. So they've begun. Maybe Israel hasn't responded in kind yet. But anyway, however you construe that, um, I thought it would be helpful to have Abner give us some uh, further understanding of who are these entities anyway, and, and why do they do what they do, and how are we to think about the uh, often heard charges, and it comes in different forms, uh, but the often heard charges that Israel is really an apartheid state and every reasonable negotiation has been tried, uh, it's failed, and so violence is the only recourse that is uh, left. And in fact, under these circumstances, it's completely justified. Um, so I thought we would uh, cover some, some of that, thought it would be helpful for everybody. And uh, we'll go from there um, in this podcast to talking about replacement theology, which is a, a very important topic, and it's a very big topic. It could probably be three podcasts on its own, but I've asked Avner to, to speak to that just a little bit because so many people have had teaching uh, through mainstream seminaries, good seminaries, uh, that Israel has been replaced. And so, Avner, welcome back to the show. It's wonderful to be with you, Ken. Always a delight. So as I'm looking at you today, um, I know, but I'll explain to our listeners that you and I are only about five miles apart. You flew <laughs> in this morning um, on an El Al jet from Israel and uh, made it to the West Coast. And you're there uh, just up the road from me with your son and daughter-in-law and your new granddaughter uh, for several days of visit. I guess you're catching the tail end of Hanukkah together. They say, uh, happy Hanukkah from Santa Monica. <laughs> Except you're not in Santa Monica, but That's it's true. Not, what not far, not far. All right. Well, Abner, um, welcome to the show. And as I said, your recent uh, newsletter dealing with Hamas and some of the origins of this conflict was, was, I thought, very insightful. And so what can you tell us about Islam and its origins, along with uh, how Hamas got generated, I'd say, very late in the story of Islam? and they function it's a it's a very big issue and one could spend as much time as one could you know could have on that but uh, to make it simple and kind of uh, 
in a fast food type of way. Um, we live in a society today that some people call post-Christian. Um, there's a philosophy of post-modernism, uh, which is that whatever truth statements people make, these are just expressions of one's own perspective and narrative. So the concept of objective truth is often not part of the way a lot of believers think today, because that's the way a lot of people think today. And so when we get to looking at the issues of uh, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, um, even a lot of the dialogue, the religious dialogue, has to do with your narrative, my narrative, uh, does this offend me, what's the history, and the concept of absolute truth um, is very far from most of the dialogue. Let me give you a personal example. I'm a Jewish man. I believe in Yeshua, in Jesus. Um, I had to deal with the issue of the history of Christianity, which was not so good toward the Jewish people. And I got beat up one time by 40 kids who hated Jews. And so I figured that that was representing Christianity. And it was only much later that I began to understand the writings of the New Testament and what Jesus says about himself and, and the teachings there. And it was very much of a surprise to me. So in the same way today, there are people who call themselves Christians. They would be Unitarian. They don't believe uh, in the specific uh, teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, maybe ethical applications, but not the concept of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so when we're getting to the issue of what does Islam believe, we gotta have we have to kind of go back in time in history to the time when people actually believed that the Bible is the Word of God, the Torah is the Word of God. And it's in that context that Islam came to pass. And so for us to weigh that, we have to kind of remove ourselves from the 21st century and go back to the 7th century AD. And uh, to do that, we have to know what was happening uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Jewish Bible, and in the New Testament, which is also a Jewish Bible, but it's the New Covenant. And look at what that says there. Because without understanding that foundation that was there in the Arabian Peninsula when Muhammad uh, was uh, involved in, in his outreach, if I can use that term, his struggle, uh, which is the Arabic word for jihad, uh, if we don't understand those contexts of what the uh, Bible is teaching, it's very hard to understand how Islam is a counterfeit. Even to use the word counterfeit, you know, I worked one time in the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce when I lived in Canada. And one of the first things they did to train branch officers is to learn uh, what is real money. Uh, and they would show you five or six or seven different ways you can see if money is real. And then, once you understood and knew what to look for, then they gave you a counterfeit. And you can say, wait, this is missing something here. It's The ink is not the same, or the, the, the watermarks are not the same. Uh, that type of thing is necessary to know why Islam is not 
in line with the teaching of the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Covenant, the Greek Scriptures. And so basically to, to focus on that, if you would say, what are five fundamental things that, that Christians believe? You would say, well, uh, you would believe that there's something called atonement that can take away your sin. Uh, you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for atonement for the world, that he um, was buried and rose from the grave, and that he sits at the right hand of God. Uh, those things Islam doesn't believe. Then you would have to say, okay, God chose the Jewish people, according to Romans 11, 28 and 29, and the rest of the Bible, that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. But you see, Islam borrowed from replacement theology. And actually, the biggest form of replacement theology today is Islam. Now, it's, replacement theology basically says that God did choose the Jews until they screwed up so badly that he's finished with them. And now any promises given to the Jews apply only to those people in Jesus who believe in Jesus, unless, of course, it's a cursing or a judgment that still applies to Israel. That's a real, what I would call a Gentile deal. Uh, so that concept of replacement theology is the primary theology in the church today. And that is, God was judging the Jewish people for rejecting Jesus and sent them into exile. And that's it. The story changes now. It's a Gentile story. Jesus Let me ask you a question on that point, because I, 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 that's where you're going is really important. I don't want to lose this question. One of the things that people point to um, as some sort of justification for the historic treatment of the Christian church toward the Jews, uh, it's better of late, but, but historically it's not been good, as you said, um, is this line, his blood be on our heads. And some of the more um, grace stream churches nowadays say, well, what they were really saying was his blood be on our heads, meaning let his blood cover us so that our sins will be forgiven. A, I don't think that the, the line should be used as a, as a reason to persecute the Jews. But B, I don't believe that second exegesis either. So would you talk to both for just a sure. second? Sure. There's a line in Fiddler on the Roof where two people come up to uh, Tevye and the first one says, here's my story. And he says, you... You're right. The second person says, but here's my story. He listens. He says, well, you're right. And the third person says, Tevya, how can they both be right? He said, you know something? You're also right. <laughs> That's kind of what you're talking about over here. There's yeah. three things. How many Republicans were in the Watergate apartments that morning when uh, the Pentagon Papers uh, author, uh, psychiatrist there, uh, when they when they ransacked through there, I would say like 99 and 44 one hundredth percent at least Republicans were not there and didn't know about it. So do we then say all Republicans are guilty of what the, uh, some CIA rogue agents were dealing with uh, uh, some of Nixon's uh, hatchet men? Of course not. Uh, the concept of trying to accuse the Jewish people of killing God or deicide. We forget that everybody in the whole story was Jewish. The ones who supported him, the ones who were against him, all the apostles were Jews, the 500 who witnessed his resurrection and ascension were Jews. Everybody was Jewish, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. So if we're going to look for and say, well, the Jews are the ones who are bad, you'd have to say, which Jews? 
but the the pagan anti-Semitism, which is the root of Christian anti-Semitism, and again, if people want to read, I can suggest two good books. One is called The Anguish of the Jews by Father Edward Flannery, uh, which is uh, 23 centuries of anti-Semitism. Notice that's pre-Christian. Another one would be uh, Our Hands Are Stained with Blood by Dr. Michael Brown. Those are very helpful books, both of them, on that history. One's much more scholarly, Flannery's book. But the issue of uh, blaming the Jewish people uh, is, is basically, the, the, it's interesting, the word for Satan in Hebrew, it's a verb, it's a, it's a, a verb, Satan, which means to accuse. So Satan, his function is that of being an accuser. And so whatever God chooses to love, and he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love in Jeremiah, um, Satan chooses to hate. And Satan has chosen the pagan world. And then when that pagan world got baptized, sprinkled, and became officially Christian, but without getting delivered from this anti-Semitic hatred, that then became part of Christian theology. One of the top uh, early Christian theologians was a Samaritan. Uh, Samaritans were known for their hatred of Jews. This is Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr was very anti-Semitic. He said God doesn't like Jewish worship, he likes Gentile worship. And both he and Origen, another early uh, Christian uh, philosopher slash theologian, basically had a lot of baggage in terms of hating the Jews. And it all comes back to a very simple two little phrases, Romans 11, 28 and 29. God says that, um, uh, that the, the gifts and calling that God has given to the Jewish people are irrevocable, are without repentance. And theologically, if we just take one minute and think about just those two verses, we're saying, therefore, that God loves the Jewish people. His calling on them has never changed. And his gifts to them have never changed. Yeah. If that's the case, then we have to read our Bible differently. We have to read the whole Bible when it talks about the Jewish people and say, oh, this is not just a devotional for my own life. It can be used that way. And it's, it's spiritually encouraging to do it that way. And I am totally encouraging that to be done. But what if it's a prophecy about the Jewish people? You know, I have plans for you for good and not for evil to give you a hope and a welfare. That was prophesied over the Jewish people in Babylon, that he's going to return all the Jews back to the land of Israel. Now, if that's true, here we are in the 21st century. He's bringing the Jews back to the land of Israel, like he prophesied in, in uh, Isaiah 11, uh, 11 and uh, Ezekiel 39, the last three verses. He's doing this, but what happens is all of a sudden the Jewish people are coming back onto our radar screen and we don't have any context biblically to understand it because we haven't been taught it. The, re the replacement theology issue has been a poison which has caused us to ignore the meaning of Scripture, especially when, you know, how much of the Scripture was written by the Jewish people? 95%? And how much of it is specifically written about the Jewish people? At least 90%. Right. So if all the stuff is about the Jews, but we never hear about it on Sundays, and all of this is saying, okay, I'm going to be bringing the Jewish people back to their homeland, and the world's going to turn against them, 
And we're actually seeing the world turning against them in the past month or two even more. Yes. That means we, we, it really behooves us to, uh, to focus on what do the scriptures say? Now, what, um, what I, and I do want to get back to where you were going uh, with uh, the Islam and that train of thought, but, but you, you just said something so pregnant, I wanted to be sure we delivered the baby. Um, with respect to this language of the, the, the church is the new Israel of God, how would you address that? Because some people are camped out on that verse also. I have dearly beloved friends, brothers and sisters in the faith who have said that to me. It's not a biblical term. If you look at the use of the uh, term Israel in the New Testament, uh, it's somewhere between 62 and 67 times, four or five of them refer to the land of Israel. And the rest of them refer to the Jewish people, period, without question. There's one verse in, in Galatians 6 talking about those who follow this rule, uh, and then it's, there's a Greek word kai, uh, plus the exit, or especially apexegetically, the Israel of God. And so the Israel of God uh, is a term uh, that Paul talks about in Romans. He says that the Jewish people who believe in Jesus are the remnant among the Jews, and the Gentiles who believe in Jesus are the remnant among the Gentiles. He says when you become a believer in Jesus, you're accepted not because you're a Jew or a Gentile, not because you're a male or a female, not because you have a lot of money or have no money, or slave or free. He said you're brought in by grace. But there's a feeling, I think, and at its root, I think it's a misunderstanding of the whole calling on Jewish people and Gentiles. We have different callings. Men and women have different callings. I know that's very unpopular, but Paul seems to have no problem with it. And so the issue then is, why would Gentiles think that they have to be called Israel for them to be kosher? God makes Gentiles kosher by believing in, you know, clean, by believing in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. But he doesn't turn men into women. He doesn't turn Jews into Gentiles or vice versa. In addition to that, you know, we have this language that Paul uses in Romans, which is, obviously written later than Galatians, but uh, it may not be obvious to everyone, but to those who have studied uh, the origins of the New Testament, they would be aware. Or if you just read about when when did Paul say he was writing various letters, you might be able to figure that out on your own. Most people don't read that carefully. Uh, but anyway, back to my thought. Um, in Romans, we have this language of wild olive branches uh, grafted back in. And so one might argue, and note that I say might, not that I think this is airtight, but one might argue that when Paul is talking about uh, peace and blessing on those who are the Israel of God, he's addressing Gentiles perhaps, but they are olive branches that have been grafted back in. And so in this sense, they have been rejoined to Israel. And I, I often make the argument that people who are Gentile believers whether they know it or not, they have been joined to Israel. And the rootstock, the original trunk, the original roots that feed the tree, they remain Jewish. And if you look at the writings of whether Paul or Peter, or for that matter, John, 
if you look at the teaching of Jesus, all of them draw, I don't even think heavily is the right word, substantially on the Old Testament scriptures, which are Jewish written, directed to Jewish people about God and his dealings with Jews. And when Paul uses this language, I think what he's doing is he's saying uh, in Galatians, I think he's making the case, okay, peace on you guys, because you are now part of the Israel of God, even though you smell like Gentiles, look like Gentiles, talk like Gentiles, walk like Gentiles, uh, were born as Gentiles in every way you were Gentiles, but actually now you've been joined into this family of faith, which originates with Abraham. One could say back even further than that, if you want to go you know, to Noah and beyond, but Anyway, we'll stay with Abraham because he's viewed as the father of the faith. Sure. And so you are you are part of this. And so may peace be upon you because there is something of that blessing that comes to you. But that's not the same thing as saying you've superseded Israel or replaced them. Right. You want to speak to any of that? Sure. Well, I wouldn't concede that point. Um, there's an excellent article by S. Lewis Johnson on the Israel of God that you can get in various fest shrifts and in the Mishkan back issues and here and there. Um, S. Lewis Johnson, the top Greek scholar on the issue. Uh, I think it's an open and shut case that that can't mean that in, in Galatians 6. But why is this issue coming up? A lot of it is coming up because of the fact that the church has called itself the true Israel, Verus Israel in the Catholic Latin terms. Um, and saying basically God's finished with the Jews, they're under judgment and they will be so, like St. Augustine, who uh, said, you know, the Jews are chosen, but they're chosen to wander the world under the judgment of God forever. So the anti-Semitism becoming part of church history is, is a lot of the, where we get the usage of that term. Um, but, you know, to me, Paul does say very clearly, he says, it's a Jewish tree, and the Gentiles are grafted in. They are wild olive branches, and they're grafted into a cultivated olive branch. So that's the first thing. He's, he says you're still wild olive branches. He doesn't say you're, you're, you have become natural. It's kind of like Ruth. Ruth uh, uh, was involved in the dynasty of King David, but she was still called a Moabite. She didn't change. It's not a cross-dressing type of identity that now we come to believe in Jesus we all of a sudden start eating gefilte fish and dancing the horror and calling ourselves Jews. No, that's not the thing. Uh, my mother of blessed memory um, told me to appreciate all cultures, all languages, all musics, all foods. And it made me a richer person because I didn't start off from the the uh, uh, prejudicial view that my way is best. And I wouldn't say Jewish ways are best. I know in the Hebrew Roots movement, people sometimes say that. Uh, I think that God chose the Jews because he wanted to do it. And he says it's based on love. Yeah. And then he says, I want the rest of the world to understand how I deal with these, the Jewish people because that's the same way I want to deal with you. And what happens, though, is it's very hard for us to live with that tension of God's choosing and thinking that he's sovereign. So what we say is, yeah, you chose the Jews, but they screwed it up, and now it's our turn. And they're not going to get a turn again. And what happens is in 19th and 20th centuries, the Jewish people start coming back to their land. 
The famous historian uh, Arnold Toynbee said it's impossible, it can't happen, but here it is. And now what's in the newspapers? The Jews in their land. And what's happening? The nations of the world are saying, we decide what percentage of what God promised to the Jews belongs to them. So the State Department says, Joshua, you know, 18 and 15 says, you know, this is, Gaza belongs to the Jews. We say, no, it doesn't. Uh, You know, the Golan, given also. All these different things. We just say, well, you know, the Jews lost it. And then Islam came in, and that's a done deal. But who's to say that God says it's a done deal? Especially once there's so much prophecy about the Jews coming back to the fullness of their land. It's very there's, a whole, there's a whole conversation we could have on that, uh, because the modern prophetic movement has been more about, here, Avner, let me give you a prophetic word about whatever, you know, and let me validate it with your street address and, you know, your middle name and the names of your four sons and so on. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think we see that pattern in the Bible. But what we have lost in the modern prophetic movement is a good, solid, working understanding of the many prophecies that are laid down in Scripture. And the reason they're inscripturated is because they are inviolable. That that everything in Scripture is that way. Yes. Uh, all of it. The New Testament as well. Yes. So uh so what we have lost in the wider church is a good working understanding of the inviolable nature of God's promises to the Jews. Yeah. And you know, when you say that, Ken, what you're saying is that the Bible is full of prophetic words about the Jewish people. Yes. And for the most part, the church can't handle that. That's correct. So what they're saying is, let it be a devotional word to me. That's correct. Do I have needs in my life? Yes. Do I need encouragement in every area? Yes. Does that mean, therefore, that these words only apply to me in an allegorical or applicational sense? No. (laughs) They apply first to the Jewish people. And this is a big thing, because basically the church doesn't have its Bible. It has reinterpreted the Bible so that it has uh, kind of interpretational tools which prevent the Bible from saying what it actually says. Because again, if one looks at the Bible honestly, and again, it's so interesting how God said through Paul to Timothy that the Word of God is to equip the New Covenant servant for ministry. And when he wrote that, there was no New Covenant written down. It was barely getting written down. And he was referring to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, as the foundation for the New Covenant minister. We don't teach it that way. That's not the way we do spiritual formation and theological training. We don't know the New Covenant, or the, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, that much. And, and I mean, it's so obvious when one looks at, um, you know, how God said, okay, I'm going to choose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to choose Ishmael to be the covenant son. I'm not going to choose Esau to be the covenant son. What does does Islam say? Ishmael, very much the covenant son. Isaac, not the covenant son. 
So again, if we know the importance of God using the Jewish people, in Romans 11, 12, and 15 says that when the Jewish people believe in Jesus, it will be much greater riches to the nations and life from the dead for the whole world. Those are significant prophetic things. And if the Quran is correct that God did not choose Isaac, but he chose Ishmael, and did not choose Jerusalem, but chose Mecca, and did not choose the Hebrew Scriptures, but chose the Quran, and Yeshua did not die on the cross, but only seemed to, docetically, and he was not raised from the dead, and he has no ability to forgive anyone of sins. If those things are true, then we need to throw out the New Covenant. Right. Throw out the New Testament. So the foundation of groups like Hamas and Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda and ISIS come from the spiritual origins of what's taught in the Quran. And one of the difficulties for so many people in the West, it's like, yeah, yeah, I don't believe in Christmas. I mean, I don't believe in Christianity. And I, I, I have a Christmas tree. I go to church once a year or two, but... Who cares about it? It's all just be nice and give money. That's not what the gospel is. But if we come to the scriptures that way, then we think Islam also doesn't care too much. Big mistake. Islam has never gone through what Europe went through, which is the Reformation and the return to accuracy of interpreting the sources and also the Enlightenment which is the concept of using uh, thought and reason to, to struggle with these biblical issues. I'm simplifying it a little bit, but let's just say it that way. And so in Islam, Osama bin Laden is not a bad man. He's a reformer. He's bringing, you know, what would Muhammad do? He's bringing, making Islam great again. And to know what Islam is when it's great, you have to go back to the beginning of the 7th century, of the 600s. The whole basis of Islam is this is true and everything else is not. And we are going to force you to accept it literally at the point of the sword. And either you agree, learn Arabic, bow the knee and accept this teaching, or we kill you or you become our slaves. It's pretty simple. And that original Islamic Jihad, which is one of the five pillars of Islam, for those who use that term, that original teaching is exactly what the jihadi forces said when they came out of Saudi Arabia. And it's exactly what the Muslim Brotherhood says, and it's what the Wahhabis who are in uh, Saudi Arabia say, and it's what the um, uh, Salafi uh, uh, people who are all across the Middle East, and it's what the, uh, what um, uh, Hamas says, and it's what Islamic Jihad says, and in the Shiite version, it's what uh, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran says. They believe this stuff. They believe that they're in a battle, and it doesn't matter if they're killed or we're killed. In the end, they're going to win over our dead bodies. That's what they believe. And I know that's... That's really strange, but that's what they believe. Well, I think it's very difficult for, um, I would say, even devout Christians to understand that way of thinking. And of course, most of the West is highly secularized at this point, which is a more palatable term for apostasy. The, the West is spiritually apostate. And I mean, this would be true not just of the Christian churches, 
and what was once called Christian Europe. It, it's a growing truth across the United States with what we now call deconstruction. Um, and let's not forget that there was a huge apostasy away from the Lord among the Jewish community in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And you had theologians, Jewish theologians like Rubenstein, Rubenstein and others writing about the death of God and how can we believe in God in the wake of something as horrible as the Holocaust? If, if this is what it means to be God's people, then God's people reject God. And so this kind of thinking has been a growing phenomenon in Western lands for a minimum of 75 years. It, it may well be longer. Um, oh, some, for sure. For sure. Some would say it goes way back to the First World War. Yeah. But, but anyway, it's been there. And the problem is that even for Christians, because we've been taught to, that being nice is the highest expression of Christian virtue, um, we don't we don't understand people who will make life and death decisions based on their religious convictions. And when we run into that, it's considered fanaticism and it needs to be stamped out at any cost. And this is why, whether in the public square or in our schools or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, you're allowed to be Christian up to a point, but if you get too serious about it, you're, you're hazed and pushed to the margin. And we even see some of this with the way, people view, say, the Orthodox or the Hasidic Jews that are attempting to walk, I would say, much closer to the old ways. And so this secularism of the West literally keeps us from understanding the mentality of those who are uh, devout Muslims. We could call them true believers, but that's a, that's a pejorative term in the West. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to just view them in their own light and yeah. from their own perspective. Yeah, you know, I would also say that the, uh, in many senses, the Jewish community theologically responded to developments in the Christian community for a good 300 years. So the development of Reformed Judaism paralleled um, Unitarianism in many different ways. And uh, the uh, Rubenstein was post-Holocaust, it's true. Um, but many Jews had, uh, based on the German higher critical Christian schools, had given up a belief in the accuracy of uh, the Old Testament as well. So, uh, yeah, but the, and the concept like, you know, uh, uh, I forget the guy's name, Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, saying, you know, God would really like to help us, but he, he's not able to do everything, so we just have to give him some slack, and that's why, you know, things happen. But again, the, the, the struggling with the Holocaust uh, and the evil. I once went to a Holocaust conference of scholars many years ago and they said, you know, we study this every six months, we need to take a break because we're looking right into the face of Satan. And when you deal with evil at that level, all of a sudden, you can't be like Woodstock generation. And this is what's happening in Israel right now. Most of the kibbutzim, which were ma attacked, massacred by rape, mass rape, torture, kidnapping by Hamas, these were leftist kibbutzim. These were right on the Gaza envelope. They were involved in the, in the peace movement. They would take people from medical treatments in Israel from Gaza. And these were the people who were killed, knifed, raped, tortured, and, and kidnapped. And this has caused a groundswell of shaking in Israel, of saying, 
okay, peace is great. Who are we going to make peace with? These people say we're going to do this again and again and again. We're not going to stop. We're going to do what Muhammad said, which is jihad, until the Jewish people are either destroyed or accept Islam. Those are the only two choices for us. And people in Israel across the political spectrum are saying, we have bought into a kind of a secular perspective that does not stand the test of truth, of reality. And of course, the thing with Hamas and these other groups is they're not saying Israel only, they're saying Israel first. They're saying the next stage is England or Germany or Belgium or Nigeria or Uganda, you know, or Indonesia or Malaysia. Well, and there have been, I mean, again, the, most of history as it is taught in our schools these days, it's either been sanitized or rewritten. Um, those aren't necessarily the same thing. Yeah. But when we look at the expansion story of Islam through its history from, I believe Muhammad made the Hajj in 632. So we're getting near to 1400 years ago. Most of the expansion of Islam throughout that period has been at the point of the sword. Yeah. Conversions. Um, certainly this went on with much of Christian Europe. And I, I just was this past summer, uh, I was in Albania and talking with leaders across the Balkans. And there are still stories that are told today of when Islam came to the Balkans four and five and six hundred years ago of what was done to the people of the Balkans because they were Christian people and they didn't want to submit. Uh, and yet uh, this was the means of conversion. And anybody who with a dispassionate eye wants to read the history of how Islam spread, the substantial majority of it was through the point of the sword. And it used to be in schools, uh, Western schools. <clears throat> we talked about the Battle of Tours which is in southern France, the, the city of Tours, T-O-U-R-S, not Tours, not like a bicycle tour, uh, where um, Charles Martel defeated the invading Islamic armies that had come across the Mediterranean with the specific objective of invading Western Europe. Usually they invaded from the east and you know came at the, the eastern reaches of what was the Roman Empire. Uh, but on this one, they, they came across North Africa, crossed the Mediterranean, and came up from the south. Charles Martel defeated them. This used to be something that was, I don't know if praised is quite the right word, but it, at least it was taught with a clear-eyed understanding that this was what Islam set out to do. And yeah. in the years since the Second World War, there's there's virtually no conversation about it. And I, I, I am certain that in no school in the U.S., unless they're just teaching in a private context, a private school that has what we call the classical curriculum. I'm certain that in no school in the, in the United States of America is the Battle of Tours even mentioned, and I would be equally sure that that is true in France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And it's interesting today, uh, agreeing with you, that right now in Europe, uh, many people are scared spitless uh, because the rise of anti-Semitism in those countries is not primarily from locals, but it's people coming from the Islamic world. It's considered very uh, un-PC to say that. Same thing is true in America. All the people who 
a large percentage of those who are leading in and catalyzing the anti-Semitic demonstrations uh, are people from the Middle East. And so what's happening basically is uh, the people from the Middle East have a very strong perspective that they are the, the rightness of their view and the ultimate triumph of their view. And they're talking to people who no longer have confidence in the gospel or in the teaching of the revelation of the word of God. So we're dealing with a very unusual challenge right now, especially in Western Europe, but it's affecting America and Canada as well. And... Um, in Israel, we have a problem, too, because the majority of Israelis are secular, and we have not believed in the importance or, or earth-shaking, you know, fundamental nature of what you believe about these things. And we're all of a sudden coming against people who say, no, we're going to destroy you. Like Khrushchev, we will bury you. We will outlast you. We will win the battle. And uh, what's going to happen? And, you know, um, if bin Laden lived next door to you, what would you do? How would you do uh, with uh, him invading your own property and raping your sister and kidnapping your uh, wife and, uh, and torturing your brother? What would you do? How, what's, how are we supposed to respond? So Israelis don't want to have to deal with these things, but we, are, we have our backs against the wall. And we're dealing with an intractable enemy who ha really believes. I think uh, we need to know what the enemy believes. Like if, you, if you're dealing with communism coming against Europe in the uh, 20s through the 70s, you need to read the Communist Manifesto and Karl Marx. I was raised with a mom who was a communist spy. I was raised uh, under Stalinist parents, so I, I grew up with this stuff. And I had no problem believing it because I, I knew the source documents. The same thing with Islam. We're not talking about Unitarian Muslims. We're talking about Jihadi Islam. And how are we going to deal with that? And so that brings us right back to the question you were asking originally, because if Islam has a different narrative, God didn't choose Isaac. He didn't choose the land for the Jews. The Jews are no longer under God's covenant. There will be no restoration for them, only destruction. If we don't know what the scriptures say and we don't believe what the scriptures saying, we're defenseless. We are not ready for combat. We're like the king of Gondor who uh, wasn't, was it the king of Gondor who was in that big uh, kind of uh, fog? And oh, that was Rohan, king of Rohan. King of Rohan, Gondor, Rohan, it's all the same. King of Rohan, that's kind of where we are. We're under a kind of a fog when we need to be ready to, uh, for the challenges which are in front of us. And, you know, it is interesting, biblically, if we look back, there are multiple passages we could, we could explore, but just as a summary statement, if you look back in the Old Testament, the Lord said, if you forget me, I will allow the nations around you to harass you in order to drive you back to me. Yes. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, God whispers in our pleasures and he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to raise a deaf world. That's right. And so to, 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 to capsulate that, we as we as a civilization, the entire of the West has turned its back on God. And we are we are a we are a culture, 
We are a society. We are a civilization in apostasy. Mm -hmm. And I know that's very stark language. We rarely talk that way anymore. <clears throat> but um, I've often said that, you know, everyone keeps talking about this great worldwide revival. And, and I teach it and preach on it, too. But I often will say we seek nothing less than the complete reconversion of the West to Christianity, mm -hmm. following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's where our, our friend who's, you know, in going through some challenges at this time, Mike Bickle talked about uh, how God spoke to him about the uh, re-understanding of, uh, of the Christian faith in one generation, that it would totally switch. And I, and I think that this whole issue of, uh, you know, somebody else, a prophetic person whose name I forget, at least publicly, talked about that we want to see the power of the resurrection, but we don't want to see the reality of the crucifixion. And uh, I think they go hand in hand. I think uh, the last day's miracles are coming, and so is the last day's persecution. Yeah. We need not only Luther's, we need Corey Ten Booms. Yeah. Amen. Very well said, Avner. Very well said. Well, you've flown in from Israel today, and we've been talking. Actually, you and I had quite a conversation before we started, uh, but we've been on this podcast for about an hour and 11 minutes. So I think um, I think we'll close it here. I love having you on the show. Um, I love the clarity of your thinking, both because you have a depth of understanding of, of Jewish tradition and scripture, but also your own background being raised, as you said, by a woman who was a communist spy. I, I think you bring a perspective that that many people don't fully appreciate or walk in themselves. So thank you for sharing your time. I know it was a long flight in, and I know that's very tiring because I do a lot of those flights. So thank you for uh, remaining awake and giving us your day. <laughs> well, it's a joy to be with you. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to encourage the body. And uh, boy, we need it because the challenges coming down the pike are greater than anything we've ever seen. And also the opportunities to shine will be greater than anything we've ever seen. Amen. Amen. Well, would you like to say a closing prayer for us and we'll sure. call it good? Yep. Sure. Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have never changed. There is no shadow of turning with you. And uh, therefore we can say great is your covenant faithfulness. And we just ask for all the people who are listening that you would be so kind to us to pour your spirit on us and grant us greater understanding and revelation of your heart, of your word, and of the things coming down the pike. We pray that you would just stitch the love of your son even more deeply in our hearts, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, everybody, that's it for now. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of God is Not a Theory. Grant Pemberton will be with us, and we'll look forward to talking with you then. Take care.